Welcome to a special Invest Talk bonus program, the Invest Talk Rapid Fire Hour. Typically, each day, Steve Peasley and Justin Klein receive more new voice bank questions than they can fit into a live show format. So, in this bonus program, caller questions will be served up and answered with brief but helpful responses from Steve or Justin. Please tell your friends about Invest Talk. And remember that the Anytime Listener lines never close. 888-99-CHART. Hello, and thank you for downloading this InvestTalk podcast. I'm Steve Peasley, and we've been tracking our podcast download numbers. They have increased month over month. This is very good. We love it. But as you can imagine, more listeners results in more live show calls and also a greater number of voice bank questions that we can't get to. So we're dedicating this show to your pre-recorded caller questions, the calls that came in early at 888-99-CHART, and I will provide as many answers as possible in this bonus podcast. In this podcast, we will concentrate on finance and investment questions, no stocks. So let's get started. Hello, Steve and Justin. I have a question about 401k. So right now I'm contributing to a 401k and I'm having my uh, employers match my contribution. And my question is, what happens to the 401k funds or let's say IRA funds if I have an IRA account if I move permanently to another country? So let's say I move either, let's say, to Canada or to Europe or anywhere else. What happens to my 401k or my IRA. Thank you very much. Nothing. It still is active here in the United States. Okay. You can't. You can't. Uh, wherever the whoever custodian you have, let's say you have Schwab or or Vanguard, whomever, your funds are still there, and you still can manage it. If you want to take the money out, you still can do that. You still can do that. Now you're going to have to translate the the dollars to whatever currency you're living in in whatever foreign country unless they accept dollars. But nothing really happens. So let's keep moving. Next up, we have a caller question from Utah. Hey, Steve and Justin. This is Jonathan calling out of Utah. My question was about debt. As I've been listening to your podcast for the last couple of months, I hear you referring to debt a lot when you're analyzing different companies. How do you determine if a company has too much debt? Is there a certain debt equity ratio that you want to stay under? Does it just depend on the industry or sector? Or are you more looking at a coverage ratio, which I understand is, you know, a company's ability just to make debt payments? I've got a couple companies that I'm holding and looking at, and I can't figure out why they might be taking a heavier hit than other companies in the industry, because pretty much all things seem equal to me. So that's kind of confusing, and I wonder if it's just the amount that they're leveraged. Anyway, thanks. Uh, Love the show. Yeah, leverage or, in other words, debt is a difficult subject because there's no one answer. Some companies, like financial companies, financial institutions, use debt to grow their companies so they have high debt. And you think, wow, that's a lot of debt they've got to pay. But they borrow money to lend money, and it's you know, they're supposed to have a high debt. Other companies, like a tech company, why do they have high debt? They shouldn't have any debt. So it's a hard answer as to... What companies carrying debt is good, bad, but in general, unless it's a company that uses debt to grow the company, debt is not necessarily a good thing. But it's not a bad thing either, depending on the company. So you just have to be, it has to be companies, 
specific and sector specific as to whether it's a good or bad thing to have debt. There is no answer I can give you. Here, use this number. That doesn't exist. This is a special Invest Talk rapid fire hour. Here comes another listener question that came in earlier. 888 99Chart. Hi, Stephen Justin. It's Vladimir from California, longtime listener. Thank you so much for your show and for, for you guys that you are teaching us, your listeners. So I have a question regarding ABBV. It's by company. In last couple of episodes, you reviewed it for one caller, and I wanted to put it in my portfolio as well. But what I noticed that the company has a negative equity. In general, is it a worry sign uh, that the company have a, a negative equity? And specifically for our economy cycle, is it a worry sign? Should we stay away of such a company or it's okay? Uh, we'll be listening for your reply on the podcast. Thank you and take care. Bye-bye. If a company has negative equity, that means they got too much debt or some other issues going on. And it is, I, I, don't, I don't buy companies that do that. Uh, so, yeah, it's a negative thing. And it's worse in an economic slump than a not. Because in a non-economic slump, they can finance their way, they can borrow money. It's easier. Of course, now, today, we have easy money. So it's not necessarily a problem for them. But it's not a good thing to have negative uh, equity. Next question is Sai about gold. Hey, Stephen Justin. My name's Ron. I've called in before. I really appreciate you guys' show. I've got a couple of positions in gold. I'm not looking for this anytime soon, just trying to be uh, forward-thinking. What are the signs that you would sell gold? And, again, I'm not looking for this for another year or two, but what would be the signs that, you know, it's time to get, to get out of gold and, and take the profits? Just curious you guys' take. Again, appreciate the show. Have a great day. Bye. Yeah, that's a very good question because there's no – Price limit on gold? How do I know how much, how value it is, what it should be trading per dollar? So how do you know when the run is over? One way is to watch the dollar. When the dollar finally settles out and starts rising, the gold run is probably over. Another sign to watch for. Watch for everybody in the world advertising about you buying, need to buy gold. When everybody, every newscaster, every publication talking about any investment publication, everybody's talking about you need to have gold in your portfolio, it's probably getting close to the end. But we're nowhere near that. I don't see that yet. So those are the con- couple of signs. Dollar flattening out and starting to rise again, and uh, everybody telling you you got to buy gold. That's hard to gauge that because what? Who? how do I know everybody's telling me that? It's just hard to gauge it. But that's that would be a couple of the signs. Now, as you probably know, we have listeners all over the country. Here's proof. This question came from Hawaii. Hello, Stephen Justin. This is Paul calling from Hawaii. I love the show, but I do have to apologize. I am a Robin Hood. My question for you guys is, why would I not want to buy further out options January 2021, even 2022 options, and leverage my money as opposed to buying individual straight stocks. Love the show. Thank you. Because if you're wrong on options, if you're wrong, you lose all the money in the, in the option. It goes to zero. You didn't make anything. 
Buying a stock, you're buying a company. You're buying a stream of income and earnings. So you don't have to worry about that is going to go to zero, generally speaking. So options is just a much more risky play. I mean, if you're just going to do options, and naked options means you don't own the underlying company. That means you put out the money. If the, if the you don't get a you don't get an in money, it doesn't make money on that particular option because all the options expire every third Friday every month. You lost all the money. That's why. Even though it's it's just not it's just not a, it's not an investment op, uh, opportunity. It's it's you're 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 taking more of a gamble on the direction of a price of a stock. That's why. This is an Invest Talk Rapid Fire Hour podcast. So let's take a question from New Jersey. Hi, Steve and Justin. This is Faisal from New Jersey. I had a question regarding the time horizon to keep the investments. You know, I've heard that many people say when you buy the stock, you can just keep it forever or till retirement. That's the best time period to keep the stock. But others say, like, you know, that's not very smart. You can sell it, you know, take profit, win the register. In your opinion, what's the good time horizon to keep an investment in a portfolio so we can get healthy returns, you know, from investment or either trading, both ways? Thank you. Take care. Bye. Well, Warren Buffett, the world's best investor over decades, his time horizon is forever. You have to think when you buy a company, you're, you're buying, when you buy a stock, you're buying the company. So you want to buy a good, solid company. And I like to write down the reasons why you want to, why I buy this company. And as long as those reasons are in place, I'm going to hold it. There is no time limit. Doesn't mean I'm going to hold it forever, but maybe I, I'm holding it for a specific reason. If it does X, Y, Z and achieves that X, Y, Z, then I will sell. Or things change. When I bought the company, I bought it for these reasons, and now those one or two of those reasons no longer exist. I may sell the company, but your time horizon when you buy it should be forever. That's my opinion. Next up, a listener wants to know about insurance. Hi, my name's Sam. I'm a new listener. I have a question about whole life insurance policies. I have one of those for all five of my kids, and I've got one for myself and my wife. And putting away about 35 to 40% of the savings, my monthly amount of savings, I put about 30 to 40% of that into these very secure, well, at least I think they're secure, policies, and I intend to pay them for the next, you know, 20, 25 years. I'm 32. I've had them since I was uh, 24. And I'm just wondering, I have the option to stop paying them, and then they'll, they'll still last, and they've been paid up enough, so they won't be, you know, they won't lapse or anything like that. And I'm just wondering if I should stop paying those and direct that 30% towards something else? Thank you. Well, I would. There's whole life, universal life, term life. Life insurance is supposed to be for life insurance. Insurance companies like to say, well, no, life insurance is an investment. And they use whole life and universal life as proof that it's an investment. Is it an investment? Yes. But I don't think it's a very efficient investment. If you need life insurance, buy term life. That's for a certain amount over a certain period of time. I would not put more money into the, 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 the whole life. I would put that money into an account, a joint account, me and my wife, or if you're not maxing out your 401k, put, open up a IRA to get some tax benefits out of that, and then invest that money. You'll find that if you do the math and do it over a long period of time, 
you'll probably have more money investing on your own than if you would have kept putting it in the whole life universal life. Remember, you've got to pay commissions for those things. They're expensive to maintain and keep, meaning there's high costs. I'm Steve Peasley. Thank you for downloading this special Investop podcast. Here comes a question about IRAs. Hey, guys. This is Jake from Salt Lake City. I just had a question regarding an IRA that my mom has. She's looking to uh, get it out of where it currently is. It's in a pretty complex account. It's been managed pretty poorly over the years and just low returns, especially given uh, you know what the market's uh, doing. So she's looking to actually... Uh, transfer it to like a Charles Schwab or something like that and just do more of a self-directed type of approach. Just wondering what the sort of uh, tax implications would be for uh, transferring that from, you know, more of a complex account, you know, with mutual funds and all sorts of different things into, you know, more of a self-directed account where she can kind of pick different, you know, ETFs or individual companies I love the program. Hope you guys can have some. Uh, all right, thanks. Bye. Okay, there is no tax con- uh, no tax consequences of any kind. If you have an IRA and it's in a complex whatever, doesn't matter where it is, and you open up another IRA and you want to roll that over that money from one IRA to another, there's no tax event of any kind. Now, <clears throat> when you sell whatever you're owning over there in that IRA, you may lose money, they may charge your fees, but there's no tax consequences for that. The transfer, whatever money's there, you liquidate it and transfer it over. You could also transfer the assets unless it's a non-transferable, and it sounds like your mom might be in one of those kind of things. And unfortunately, she's probably talked into it, and that's why she's not making money. But there is no tax consequences. Our next investor caller has submitted a question about blue chip stocks. This came in earlier at 888-99-CHART. Hi, Steve and Justin. I'm a fairly new investor. I heard Steve say that the majority of my portfolio should be blue chip stocks. So what I'm wondering is right now I have about 60% blue chip stocks. Is that enough? Um, do I need to kind of change things up, buy more blue chip stocks, sell the rest. Anyways, just wondering your thoughts on that. I appreciate it. All your help. Bye-bye. I would say no. 60% is enough. Um, I, if you're not very knowledgeable, I would say you need more. Knowledgeable about the market, about stocks, about companies. More than 60%. Because that core holding is holdings blue chip that you plan on never letting go. And you, you want to buy them at a good price, so you be patient. Wait till they come to a good price. Buy them, and hopefully they're paying dividend, and hopefully they'll increase in their valuations. Buying other than blue chip stocks means you are taking more risk. So you might be buying growth stocks, and growth stocks might not be blue chip. Okay, depending, most of them are not. So that doesn't mean you don't buy them. That just means that that's more risky. If you're young, you should do that. Take more risk but only if you know what you're buying and why you're buying, okay? This is Invest Talk Rapid Fire Hour podcast, everybody. Please tell your friends about our free downloads. Next up, question from a new investor. Hello, my name is Hugh, and I'm 23 years old. I was wondering what I should be focusing on as someone that's new to investing. Thank you. 
Okay, you probably shouldn't be focusing on individual stocks because you're new. You probably want to focus on buying ETFs of indexes, the S&P 500, the NASDAQ, the Dow, the Russell 2000, buying an index until your knowledge grows. And then you can start buying individual stocks. But if you're new and you're just not, you know, you just don't have the knowledge yet, don't try to buy individual stocks. It's, it's much more difficult than you might realize. Stick with the indexes. That's what I would suggest. Okay? 888-99-CHART is our number. This is the Rapid Fire Hour podcast. Our next voice bank question concerns cannabis industry. Hey, Justin or Steve, this is Chris from Philadelphia. First off, thank you guys for doing what you do. Love listening to the podcast. And I've also had the pleasure of calling up and uh, engaging with you guys over the phone, and I think that's awesome. So my question is about the cannabis industry. I'm looking to know if there's anything on the radar for cannabis. I've been searching for an IPO that perhaps I could get involved with, the only thing that I've been able to find are like penny stocks, which I know are, you know, not advisable. So I was looking at like MJ and A, but you know, it's like 16 cents a share. So I couldn't find anything that was like anything close to an investable stock, in other words. So like I said, if you could uh, let me know what you think, I'd appreciate it. Otherwise, thanks for everything you do. Take care. You got to realize that uh, cannabis marijuana is still federally illegal in this country. So I would focus on, you know, companies that are not necessarily in this, in this country. There's a couple of big cannabis companies out of Canada that are traded on our stock exchange, and that's where I would focus. I wouldn't focus on startups or, or you know, I don't like penny stocks at all. You know that. So don't even worry about Don't even think about those. But there are some big cannabis companies, and I would focus on those that are outside the United States, and really uh, Canada is the... Is a, there's a couple up there that I think you can invest in if that's what if that's where you want to go. Next caller from San Clemente, California, wants to know about saving for grandchildren. Yeah, hi Steve uh, and Justin. This is Andrew from San Clemente. My beautiful uh, granddaughter Alicia recently turned three. Um, I was wondering if I should start funding a 529 for her or open up a, a brokerage account due to the impact of the virus along with uh, technology changes that could change the way students go to school in the future. So I'm, I just would like your thoughts on either opening up a 529 or a brokerage account and see what you guys uh, think about that. Appreciate it. Thanks. You guys have a great day. Bye. I think a 529 is great for your granddaughter. I, I really do. Um, colleges are still going to be around. They're still going to cost lots of money. And that will give you her that child a big boost if she goes to college. The problem with a 529, what if she doesn't go to an accredited college? She doesn't, she can't use the 529 for anything else. Now you can open up a brokerage account. You can open up an UTMA, Uniform Gift to Minors Act, where you're you're in control, but it's her account. When she turns 18, it's her money that she can spend anywhere she wants. Uh, They're called UTMAs, UTMAs. Um, and you can do it that way. You can also open up just a separate account in your own name and just designate it in your mind that this is your granddaughter's money whenever she turns a certain age for her to use for college or buying a house or whatever. Uh, and I think it's a great idea. If you have extra money to do that, that, that why not? 
Why wouldn't you? This is a special Investop podcast. We are moving fast to fit in lots of fresh answers. You are listening to a special Invest Talk bonus program, the Invest Talk Rapid Fire Hour. Typically, in a 24 hour period, Steve Peasley and Justin Klein receive more new voice bank questions than they can fit into a live show format. So, in this bonus program, caller questions are being answered with brief but unbiased and helpful responses from Steve or Justin. Let's keep moving. Hey guys, I'm looking to buy a house in the next six to nine months, so I'm trying to decide where to keep my down payment money. I have about $16,000, so I was wondering, should I keep it in savings or is an ETF a good idea? I look forward to hearing your advice. Thanks. Bye-bye. No, an ETF is not a good idea. Moving the money into the stock market is not a good idea if you're looking six to nine months down the road. Because who knows? You could be needing that money right when the market corrects. And so you lose 20%, 15% of that money when you need it for the down payment. So I would suggest you leave it in the savings account. If you had years, three, four, five years, then yeah, I would put it in the market. But not, not if you're going to need it in a short period of time, within a year. No. Um, even two years is probably too short. So leave it in the money market, be, um, and you're just going to have to be unhappy with the returns because you're not going to get anything. Next question concerns interest rates. Hello, my name is Ron. I'm call- calling from Sunnyvale, California. I'd like to know what you think interest rates are going to do in the short term, say in the next three months. For uh, mortgage loans, do you think they're going to stay where they're at or drop or go up? Thank you. Bye. I think they're going to stay near where they are. Uh, they might go a little bit lower, but I don't think they're going to go up in the next three months. Why do I think that? Because the Federal Reserve has said, the chairman has said, he's going to do anything he can, everything they can, to keep liquidity in the market. That means money is going to keep pouring in. They're going to keep buying mortgages and debt and everything else. That will put pressure downward on interest rates. They'll keep that pressure downward. Next up from Minnesota, call a question about institutional ownership. Hi, Stephen Justin. This is Carter from uh, Minnesota. I'm 20 years old and relatively a new investor. Um, I was listening to your podcast the other day, and uh, I think Steve mentioned something about managerial uh, ownership and how you know uh, a company didn't own that much or the managers didn't own that much, and that was unattractive. I've seen a lot of people talk about how institutional ownership is something to look at, see where the big money's flowing. I just want to hear you guys' thoughts on that. And if I'm going to invest in a company with a man who with the managers owning some shares, what percentage do you guys look for? Thank you. Okay, that's really a good question, and it, there's no one answer. But you do want the managers to own some of their shares. You want them to be focused on growing that company. If it's a real small company, you want them to have – five, seven, ten percent. If it's a very large company, one, two percent. Institutions drive stock prices. They drive them up or they drive them down because they have large chunks of money they put in a company or take out of the company. You and I, we're not big enough to move the stock price. They are. So institutional ownership, you hear me on the radio say a lot, well, it looks like, uh, uh, looks like, looks like mutual funds are buying. That's institutional ownership. And if they're buying, they're pushing the stock. Now, it doesn't always work out because you don't know how much they're buying. But usually you get an idea of their percentage ownership. You want institutional ownership in the stock that you're looking at. 
This is a special investor podcast, the Rapid Fire, Rapid Fire Hour. Next question came is from Texas. Hi, this is Corey from Texas. I'm calling regarding some specific SEC filings. When doing due diligence regarding buying a specific stock, how much merit would you put into analyzing the Form 4, which is the Statement of Changes in Beneficial Ownership of Securities, uh, to kind of see who is buying or selling what stock? Thank you. Well, over the years, I've noticed that that doesn't really push the stock price. As I said in the previous question, it's institutions that push the stock price. So the filings, I do like to know, when you have insider ownership, it's nice to know that they're not getting those shares, buying or selling, by that's how they're compensated by the company. Because you get a lot of that, right? Options from the company for you, the manager of the company, and they want to realize some some uh, payday for that. They'll they'll trigger the options and sell the stock. And it looks like the the owners are selling the company. The managers are selling their stock, and therefore they're not attractive. What you really want to see is ownership uh, insiders buying the stock in the public market. And it would be nice if they would separate that out, and you would know that that's what's happened. But you kind of kind of don't know. So until after the fact, at least. So, you know, it's a it's a difficult question, um, but you do want to see institutional ownership increasing. You really do. Next up, a question from New Jersey. A question about electric vehicles and the industry. Calling from New Jersey, I wanted to ask you about um, you know getting into the EV industry. Obviously, Tesla's overvalued right now. I was looking at some of the alternatives. You know, Neo, Workhorse. I want to know if you had any recommendation, you know, how to get into that industry now at an alternative company that's, you know, obviously at a better value than Tesla. Thank you very much. Well, you know, Volkswagen has dedicated themselves to be 100% electric cars, I don't know, five or 10 years down the road. See, what's happening is there's a big switch going to come in the industry. There'll be more and more electric cars. Uh, Toyota, GM, Ford, they're all coming out with more and more electric cars and high-end cars i know for instance uh porsche is coming out with a super electric car it's going to cost like a million dollars so you can get into that industry even if you buy an auto company that's out there toyota so um i think i wouldn't buy tesla because it's just too expensive at this our final question in the first part of the podcast a caller wants me to talk about weak dollar hey there steve and justin this is leo from up in the bay area and I've got a question for you all. Um, with all the stimulus and, you know, all the Fed intervention, it seems like the dollar is weakening, and I kind of think it's going to continue to do so further, possibly a whole lot. And I know when the dollar weakens, it means other currencies are basically strengthening. And I'm curious, what's the best way to take advantage of that? Is there a way to invest, you know, the, a retail investor take advantage of such a situation? Curious to hear your response. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Yeah, the easiest way is through exchange-traded funds, ETFs. And I've been talking about gold for a long time, and there is a strong relationship with dollar goes down, gold goes up. Gold miners go up, gold price goes up. But there, I think there's an ETF that specifically, and I don't remember the symbol, I couldn't give it out anyways, but there is an ETF, I think, that is... Banking it goes up when the dollar goes down. There's a, a specific relationship. The ETF designed to go up in price 
as the dollar goes down. So I, it's out there. All you do is Google it. I'm sure you can find it. But the easiest way is to, is precious metals. They will spike if the dollar goes down. And they'll go up if inflation hits. But dollar going down usually means inflation's going up. So that's how I would play it. I'm Steve Peasley, and I thank you for listening to this special Invest Talk bonus podcast. It's not over. We're going into a short break, after which Justin Klein will take over duty here at our answer desk. Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay, why? I mean, how would it come in handy? And where would you want to use it? Could it be that you have an upcoming international trip? Or maybe you want to connect with family members or friends from a different culture. I think you should know about Rosetta Stone. With millions of users, it's been the world's most trusted language learning program for 30 years. Rosetta Stone is available on your desktop or as an app with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It has a built-in patented speech recognition engine called True Accent. So as you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you pronounce words. With Rosetta Stone, you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's an intuitive process designed for long-term retention. You really learn to speak, listen, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone is an amazing value, so your special skill set is within easy reach. You know you want to do this, so don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, InvestTalk listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com today. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. You are listening to a special Invest Talk bonus program, the Invest Talk Rapid Fire Hour. 
Caller questions are being answered with brief but unbiased and helpful responses from Steve or Justin. Hello, and thank you for downloading this Invest Talk podcast. I'm Justin Klein, and we've been tracking our podcast download numbers, and they increase every month. This is very exciting, but as you can imagine, more listeners results in more live show callers, and also a great number of voice bank questions. So we are dedicating this show to your pre-recorded caller questions. The calls that came in earlier on 888 chart and I will provide as many answers as possible in this bonus podcast. One note, this show will not take stock questions. Instead, we are concentrating on market process questions and a wider range of finance questions which came in earlier. Let's get started. Hey, Stephen, Justin. My name's Justin. I've been listening for a few weeks and love the show. I'm in my early 30s. I'm a new investor and have about 25000 that I would like to invest for long-term hold and growth. I'm a little apprehensive right now because the market is so volatile, and it seems like all of the top analysts believe that we may be soon trending downwards no matter what happens in November. In my position, are there any investments that make sense in a time like this? And if so, what would you recommend? Thanks in advance and keep up the good work. Well, there's always opportunity in every market. So don't get discouraged by a broad market that might be overvalued, right? Because the market right now is very concentrated, very top-heavy in the very expensive tech names. But that does not mean that there aren't opportunities elsewhere on the industrial side of the economy, the commodity side, which tends right now is very, very cheap in relation to history. If you've been listening to Invest Talk for any length of time, you know right now, I think precious metals are a great place to be. So don't get discouraged just by the broader overarching valuation of the market and how maybe disconnected it is from the overall economy. Try to focus on individual names, learn about different industries, take this time to learn more than invest. Hope that helps. Let's keep going. Here comes another caller question. Hello, I have a question about TSP, that's Thrift Savings Plan, or the retirement plan. They introduced the life cycle five-year increment, and I wanted to change my life cycle 2030 fund to a life cycle 2035 fund to match my uh, closer to my retirement date. Uh, my question is, do I do this on ideally on a day when the stock market is doing good or bad, or does it not matter? Thanks. I appreciate your show. Great question. Now, what you're trying to do is you're trying to switch from a 2030 fund to a 2035 fund. Now, the 2035 fund is naturally going to have more equity exposure, more stock exposure, right? So if you're moving to that, that means that you're basically buying more equities, right? Gaining more exposure to the equity markets. So ideally, you probably want to do that more on a down day in the markets, and therefore, you're going to be getting more, uh, more of the equity side or equity exposure uh, in your portfolio. Hope that helped. You're listening to a special Rapid Fire Hour. Hi, Steve or Justin. My name's Eric, and I've been listening to your show for about a year now, and I've really learned a lot. I thank you for that. And I was wondering if sometime on the program you could talk a little bit about SPACs or special purpose acquisition companies. I guess specifically what I'm wondering is how do these compare to like a traditional 
IPO as far as are they more risky, less risky? And I know you've talked in the past about not investing in an IPO until it's been out for at least six months for the insiders to kind of get out and prices to regulate or whatever. Do you have any kind of general guidelines for companies that become public through the SPAC? Thank you, and I'll listen for your answer. Great question. Now, SPAC stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. What it does is it raises capital, maybe a few billion dollars, and the idea is to go out and buy another company, buy an actual company. The SPAC doesn't have initially any company in it. It's just a, an asset uh, with cash. And then they use that cash to go make an acquisition. And oftentimes the price of that SPAC will pop dramatically. And this all has to do, it's financial engineering. They're limiting the supply of shares that are out there, right? Because the owners of that SPAC, owners of the shares, typically are closely held. So when the supply of shares are very, very low and they go make an acquisition and he wants to buy into that acquisition, they're chasing after a very select few number of shares and that really explodes the value of that SPAC. So, you know, if you want to play that, that game, that, that financial engineering game that a SPAC does, then that's, that, that's fine. Um, but it's also very risky. They might make a poor acquisition. They may not keep as many shares held to the vest as they had hoped. Uh, there are a lot of risks to it. Uh, but it's definitely not an investment vehicle. It's a speculative vehicle only. Our next Invest Talk caller question came from Florida. Hey, Stephen, Justin. My name is Justin also uh, here calling from Florida. I um, just have a question about this new CARES Act incentive on being able to borrow your, from your 401k. I'm 33 years old. I have, I think you can borrow up to 100k. And they're waiving a the 10% penalty fee. And they're even letting you avoid paying taxes if you pay it all within three years, I think December of 2023. So it seems pretty enticing to do it. I planned on avoiding the taxes because I know that'll probably be like 30% taken out of me by maybe doing a loan, paying that back and dollar cost averaging back into the market uh, over three years. Kind of want to see if I can invest that money maybe into some properties, try to get some kind of passive income going. And then this way I'm able to dollar cost average back into the market over three years with all this volatility going back on. Just wondering what your thoughts are and if you think it's a good idea. Appreciate any help. I'll be listening to the show. Thanks. Oh, it's an interesting idea. It's a high risk idea because can you pay back that $100,000 over, over that three year period as well, right? So three years goes by rather quick. And what type of risk are you taking with that? Uh, are you just going to buy a property when property prices are expensive? I don't know. It just doesn't seem like a great idea. Uh, the, the point of that whole loophole that was created was to help sustain people in tough economic times. Maybe they lose their job or whatever. So I wouldn't really play that game. Uh, it's, it's a little complex, a little risky. Uh, I would be more patient and uh, I wouldn't take advantage of that unless you had to to pay bills, but I wouldn't use it to speculate. I'm Justin Klein, and I thank you for downloading this Invest Talk podcast bonus show. In this hour, I am focusing solely on caller questions, which we are retrieving from our voice bank. Our anytime listener line never closes. So when you have a finance or investing question, call 888 99 Chart. 
Now let's go to a caller question that came in from Virginia. Hi, this is Stan from Richmond, Virginia. I have a question. Let's say one has a core position in a portfolio such as AT&T symbol T. I believe you have this in some of your portfolios. So I'm in it probably mainly for the dividend and possibly some growth. What kind of a sell discipline, if any, do you have? Perhaps in the past you had GE in your portfolio, and then I assume that you have since jettisoned that from your portfolios. What kind of a sell discipline do you use? Do you set a price, or do you say when the main business changes, or when the CEO changes, or when the earnings turn down or turn down unacceptably? I would appreciate an answer, and we'll be listening on the podcast. Thanks so much for your great show. Goodbye. All great questions. And first off, we haven't owned GE for a very, very long time. So we definitely didn't ride GE down uh, through its uh, its big drop from, let's see, what did GE drop from? Yeah, $30 a share. Actually, you can go all the way back to yeah 2000. It was at $57 a share. Now it's trading around 6 bucks a share. So definitely a big ride down with GE. But going back to AT&T and the sell discipline, the way that we look at it is, what is the underlying business and are is leadership making good decisions with the capital that they are deploying now i think at&t has made a couple of bad acquisitions in the past mainly direct tv and uh, they're jettisoning that right now uh, but overall we're looking at the performance of the business is it performing above or below our expectations what is the economic backdrop and how will that affect their business? So uh, 85-ish percent of AT&T's revenue comes from their wireless business. And to us, that's almost like utility. Everyone has a cell phone, and they really uh, aren't going to give that up, even if they lose their job or whatever. Uh, it's a crucial part of your lifestyle. lifestyle. And so uh, they're... they're fluctuation in that business is very, very low. So even with the economic backdrop the way it is, maybe that 15 to 20% of the business that is more economically sensitive will get hit. But we like that steadiness of AT&T and that part of the business. And, and the other side, uh, they'll, they'll manage around and it will do a little bit better, a little bit worse from time to time. Uh, so we look at that. What is the core of their business? And is the, is the economic backdrop going to be beneficial, detrimental, or neutral? to their overall business. And so uh, that's one reason we like AT&T because of the steadiness of the vast majority of their revenue. So really it's about underlying business and the economic backdrop. Now you've heard me mention precious metals like silver and gold, but what about copper? Let's take this question. Hi, my name is Joe. I have a question for your show. I'm curious about your thoughts on the copper space as a commodity and copper miners in particular. I'm considering taking a long-term position in that space and just wondering what your thoughts are. Thanks, and I'll be listening on the podcast. Well, I do like the commodity space as a whole, and if we do have some large infrastructure spending, I think that this will be an area that will do very, very well because copper is used in uh, almost all building uh, of some type, whether that's infrastructure or homes or or office buildings, whatever. Uh copper is used extensively. So I like the copper space. Uh, I like a lot of the miners. They're very cheap. So in general, I like it without getting into specific companies. 
I like the copper space. This is a special Invest Talk bonus show, the Rapid Fire Hour. Let's keep moving. Hey, Steve and Justin. My name is Ryan, and I'm 21, and I was hoping you could provide some clarity on earnings season terms. I'm trying to follow the earnings on the companies that I invest in, and when I was looking on their website, they were talking about diluted earnings per share and adjusted earnings per share. I was trying to look up the terms on Investopedia, since you two always suggest that website, and I was kind of confused. Um, I also saw convertible securities as well, something to do with diluted earnings per share. And I was hoping you could explain what these three terms are in layman's terms to someone who isn't too advanced on the finance terms. Uh, that would be diluted earnings per share, adjusted earnings per share, and convertible securities. Love your show. Thank you so much. Now, let's start off with the convertible securities. So there are such things as convertible bonds. That's typically what they're talking about when they're saying convertible securities is that uh, when you own a convertible bond, you typically get some interest. It's usually lower than a typical bond. And you are owning a call option. And and the reason you get a lower interest is because you're owning a call option, basically paying for that call option for the upside of the common stock. So for normal bondholders, if the company does really, really well, you're still going to just get your interest payment and principal back. You're not going to participate in the upside and success of the underlying business and the common stock. But if you have a convertible security, that helps you do that and it converts at a certain price. Okay, But when that converts, it converts to shares and new shares are issued. It adds to the number of shares outstanding of the company. And so when you're looking at diluted earnings per share, it's including all potential dilution that's out there if those options are triggered and that would create new shares of the company. So that's what diluted earnings per share means. It's saying, okay, what are all of the securities out there and how much of it could be potentially diluting shareholders and thus that's how you get the earnings per share because you divide the total net income of the business divided by the number of shares outstanding and diluted is not just the only the current shares outstanding but also potential dilution based on what else is out there in the marketplace hope that clarifies it let's keep the pace moving quickly this time we take a call from an invest talk listener in new hampshire hey steve and justin it's steve ogercron here from uh, new hampshire love the show uh, quick question for you. When you guys run your support and resistance numbers, can you give me a little bit of a debriefing on what you guys are exactly looking at so I can start looking at it myself too? I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks. Sure. There are a few factors that become support and resistance. Obviously, moving averages. I typically like the 50 and the 100-day moving averages. I think those are uh, the most important moving averages. Some companies tend to find support more at the 50. Some companies tend to find more support around the 100. Just depends on the company, how volatile they are. So moving averages also are very important. Also, previous breakout areas. So if you look back in the chart and the, the price has been chopping sideways and the price had broken out above that and now it's retesting that area, oftentimes that's very strong support as well. And then 
Previous pivot points, so you're talking about double bottoms, triple bottoms, etc. That can be strong support. And then lastly, Fibonacci levels. So Fibonacci retracement levels, I like to combine those with other factors as well. So this goes into chart reading. And chart reading is, is more of an art than a science. And there are various factors that come into creating support and resistance. And really it's about being able to identify those various factors and the best ones line up two or more factors to create very strong support. You are listening to a special Invest Talk bonus program, the Invest Talk Rapid Fire Hour. Typically, in a 24 hour period, Steve Peasley and Justin Klein receive more new voice bank questions than they can fit into a live show format. So, in this bonus program, caller questions are being answered with brief but unbiased and helpful responses from Steve or Justin. Let's keep moving. Hello, my name is Dan from Minnesota. I have a question, please. I currently have about 1% of assets in silver. I'm interested in buying some gold. I wondered, would it make sense if my HELOC was a 3.2% interest rate to use that HELOC to buy gold at this point to bring me up to 5% in total for precious metals investment. Your thoughts are appreciated. Thank you. My simple answer is no. I would not borrow money against your home in order to invest in gold and silver. It's a volatile asset class, uh, and just HELOCs in general are, are, are tough lending vehicles, right? Typically it's interest only for the first five years and then they start to amortize. I would not be utilizing your HELOC to buy gold and silver. Just get your budget more in order, try to save more and start allocating more of your assets to that space or sell other assets. That's only 1% of your overall asset. Well, you have other assets, sell those assets in order to fund uh, and up your allocation to that space if you're going to do it. I definitely wouldn't use your HELOC in order to make that happen. Now let's grab a question from Georgia. Hello, Stephen Justin. This is Jay from Georgia. Quick question for you. You've invested into a stock you've researched. You like how it looks. You have no intention of selling it. It starts to drop. When would be a good time to buy more? I know after 5% drop, it's not advantageous to do that. But is it 10 or 20%? Uh, look forward to listening to the answer. Thank you. To me, it would be at support. So things are going well. It starts dropping. It starts pulling back, which is not atypical, right? Nothing goes straight up or straight down. You get pullbacks, consolidation periods, etc. And uh, I would use a chart, find moving averages, find previous breakout areas, like I've said before. Uh, and if it retests those areas, then that's when you would pick up more shares. So don't use a percentage. Every stock can be very different. Some stocks might move 3% in one day, and that could be a huge move for that particular stock. Think of you know big blue chip businesses. Others, 10% in a day are is normal because it's, it's a volatile name. It may be a tech name, it may be a biotech, whatever that is, the volatility may be higher than normal. So I wouldn't use a, a specific percentage. I would look at charting, moving averages, support areas, and that's where I would be adding to a position on pullbacks. Next up, a caller from Dallas, Texas wants to know when to trim. Hey guys, Jacob from Dallas here. 
I've really been kind of loading up on gold and silver uh, ETFs and some of the kind of specific mining companies over the last year and, and really piled on kind of in the last few months. Obviously, you know, it's, it's worked out pretty well. I guess my question is, what kind of signal are you guys looking for to maybe trim some of those positions? Obviously, you know, you kind of want to keep things balanced uh, as much as possible. Is there any market signal that you're looking for to, to maybe cut back a little bit or, or reduce the holdings? Uh, mine have gotten a little bit bloated in comparison to the rest of my portfolio uh, just with the recent gains. So I was curious if, uh, you know, maybe not a specific exit price, but uh, maybe just a market signal or the economy turning around. Uh, we know the Fed's still printing money, so uh, a little bit confused there, and, and some guidance would be really helpful. Thanks, Mike. Great question, and I'll tell you what we are thinking. First is, what would trigger fiscal sanity from Congress, right? I, I said before how you know we went into this year at a trillion dollar deficit and now we're going to be closer to five trillion uh there there's really no end in sight to the spending and the economy while getting better is no longer getting better at a, at a fast clip right we had a pretty decent quick bounce not only in the markets but also the economy but still well below where we were in february and that means a recession instead of depression, just a, a solid, strong recession is kind of what we're in. And that is requiring fiscal stimulus to, to keep it where, uh, where we're at. And so until there's more traction in the economy without fiscal spending, then I don't see this changing. I see Congress continue to spend, spend, spend. And that means debasing the currency and the Fed will monetize, monetize, monetize. And until there's some hint at that changing, I don't think there's much reason to trim very much, to be honest with you, because I don't see the dollar strengthening uh, and I don't see debasement reversing until something like that happens. You are listening to a special Invest Talk bonus podcast, The Rapid Fire Hour. Here comes another question. Hi, Steve or Justin. I love your show and appreciate your advice. I'm curious about what account would be best to trade under? I have a Roth IRA and individual trading account. Which one would be better for making trades and investments? Thank you. Well, if you're trading a lot and you're creating short-term capital gains, then a tax-deferred account like a Roth IRA would be the best. If you're a buy and holder and you're typically not selling very often, then those type of investments are better in maybe taxable accounts because you're not creating taxable events very often. So depends on how much you trade. For most traders, a tax deferred account is best. Next up, a question that came in earlier on 8899 chart from Seattle. Hey, Stephen Justin, this is CJ calling from Seattle, Washington. Love your show. Thanks for all that you guys do. Quick question today about the merger announcement between Teladoc and Livongo, both pretty good growth names in the telemedicine sector. If you wouldn't mind sharing your thoughts on the merger going forward, as well as why both stocks took a pretty big dive on the announcement. Appreciate it in advance. Thanks. The reason that both took a dive on the announcement is because Teladoc took a dive. Teladoc is issuing shares, and it's a smart move because their shares are very expensive, and they're utilizing those expensive shares to 
buy a competitor. And they're buying it with those shares, and therefore the owner of Livongo, owners of Livongo, are going to now get Teladoc shares. So if Teladoc shares drop, well, the value of their shares are going to drop until there's a merger. So there's going to be a, a correlation there between Livongo shares and Teladoc shares. They're both expensive. The space is very overhyped. Uh, there's, they're still losing money. And it's, it's really just uh, an overvalued sector along with uh, many others in the tech uh, post-COVID world. There's a lot of hype in many of these names. And I like the space, just not these as my favorite. Here comes a question about ETFs. Hi, Steve and Justin. I just had a quick question. I'm a relatively new investor and I've been trying to understand some of the ETFs, uh, for example, GLD, SLV, uh, GDX, SIL. And I noticed that there's expense ratios, management fees. When I look on TD Ameritrade and just trying to understand what that means when you see a management fee on an ETF, what does that look like practically day by day, week by week, month by month, in, uh, if I were to add an ETF like this to my portfolio? Thanks for answering my question. Have a great day. Great question, and this applies to all ETFs, all mutual funds as well. So they all have some sort of expense ratio. For GDX, for example, it's 0.53%. So annualized, that's how much is being charged by the fund each year. Now, you're actually being charged every single day, and it's being taken out of what is called the NAV, the net asset value. And so you don't see it. It's pretty stealth because it's very small each and every day, but it's there. And so you're getting charged that 0.53% for holding GDX, and you take that 0.53%, divide it by however many trading days there are in a year, probably something around 250, and each day you're getting charged that. It's being taken out of the NAV, and thus the underlying value of that ETF and that applies once again to all ETFs or mutual funds as well. This is Invest Talk. Two questions left for this podcast. Let's keep it moving. Hello, my name is Thomas. I'm looking at the recent merger between Vivint Solar and Sunrun. Given that when they invest large sums of money, such as in this case $75 million at an average price over a 30-day period that runs up the stock price, would you expect a near-term pullback if you'd like to gain exposure to this type of trade? I'm curious and look forward to hearing it on the show. Thanks. Bye-bye. Yeah, when anything moves that quickly, typically there is, it's overbought, uh, people are panicking in, and also people are chasing right the story. And when that reverses, that means there are weak hands and they typically sell rather quickly, right? They're not holding for the long term. They're just traders. So I do think uh, Sunrun is overstretched. It's overbought. Uh, and I would wait for a pullback. Now, our final question comes from Minnesota. Hey, Steve and Justin. This is Carter from Minnesota again. So I have a question coming up on a trade idea. I was thinking around in October, kind of, you know, before the election that um, I want to buy maybe 2 to 5% of my portfolio's worth of the VIX or TVIX kind of as a hedge for my portfolio. I'm assuming there will be volatility, you know, with the election and everything like that. But if we do see a big drop in the market because of the election or because of some news before the election, I would be able to cash that out and put it back into my portfolio on the dips. 
I was wondering if you guys thought this was a good idea or have any other suggestions as a hedge for the election. Thank you. Now, what you have to understand about any of these volatility ETFs is that you're buying volatility. So when you're buying that volatility, there's some level of implied volatility that is already priced into the market. Now, to when you the way to make money is to buy volatility when volatility is priced cheaply, right? Where people are not expecting volatility. And then suddenly volatility hits and the price of volatility goes up. Now, currently, the implied volatility around the election day is elevated because there's probably people like you that are looking to bet on this type of volatility. So you're paying up for volatility around election day. Now, that doesn't mean that the price of that volatility can't go even higher than it's already priced, but just know that you're not really gaming the system here. You are simply trading or betting like a lot of other speculators are on the level of volatility around the election. So I hope that helps. I would definitely wait until closer to the election to make that bet because there's a lot of decay of, of volatility. I'd probably do it somewhere in early October if I was going to do it. Um, but I would pass on it just because I know right now the volatility is very expensive around that election night. I'm Justin Klein, and I thank you for listening to this special Invest Talk bonus podcast. It is a free download. Please tell your friends about our program and our website, investtalk.com. Remember, our philosophy at KPP Financial, independent thinking, shared success. You can learn about our unbiased guidance and the variety of our investment programs at investtalk.com. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them specifically. Nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell securities. Such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein Pavlis Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor, which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is President and Justin Klein Chief Executive Officer of Klein Pavlis Peasley Financial. And they thank you for listening and welcome your comments or questions on our 24-hour listening line at 888-99-CHART. <music>